Well, for those of you that don't know Daniel and Stephanie, uh, Daniel and Stephanie came here to us uh, back in the 2010s area, back in that, uh, that period. Uh, y'all were here 2012 to 14, somewhere in that, in that range. And Daniel served as our youth minister, and Stephanie was right by his side the whole way. They have impacted so many of our teenagers, and so much of what we see going on in our student ministry and our college adults, uh, we see as a result of the fruit of what they did. And it's just been a, a neat partnership. Uh, God called them to go back to uh, Seattle. They settled in the Des Moines area, which is just south of Seattle. And, uh, and there they've planted a church called the Mountain Church. And, and you'll notice uh, on the offering envelopes in your, in your pew in front of you that every week we give you an opportunity to support what they do as well as what we do here. Um, and I want to talk to you just a little bit about that because they didn't come here to raise money. This is not a, a, a thing where they're on a, a tour trying to raise money for their church. But I will tell you this, that planting a church in the Seattle area is not a very cheap thing to do. Uh, the cost of living up there is crazy, but the opportunities for the ministry that they do is just incredible. Uh, every year, you guys help us with our bake sales and with all the different things that we do to raise money so that our kids can go on mission trips. Uh, one of the places that we always go is Seattle. It's an opportunity for our kids to, to go up there and to serve alongside their church and to help make uh, a little bit of a difference in what they're doing in their community. And so we wanted to be able to give you the opportunity to kind of put a face with this church that we've asked you to partner with. And one of the things that I would really encourage you to do today as you listen to God's word is to, to hear how the Lord speaks, but to consider um, each week or each month, if you could, to to help us as we support them. And what will happen is if you, if you use these envelopes and you check on there that you want this gift to go to the Mountain Church in Seattle, then we collect that for each month, and then each month we write a check and send it to support the work that they do up there. Um, I, I know that about half of their support comes from within their church, uh, but the other half comes from churches like ours that help to support them and help them to be able to fund the, the ministry and the work that they do up there. The first couple years that Daniel and Stephanie were in Seattle, uh, they were able to get support through the Southern Baptist Convention, but that's just a three-year commitment, and they've been there for, what, about six years now, I think, and so uh, they're pretty much on their own except for partner churches like ours, and I just want to encourage you to really pray about how that you can do that. Uh, Daniel and Stephanie have become more than just ministers in a church. They are um, they're part of our family. Uh, I look at them as, as, as I look at my own kids. I love them the way that I love my own children. And, uh, and this partnership that we get to have with them is just so real and it's so personal. And, uh, and I have a hard time talking about it without getting choked up and without, without uh, getting uh, all teary-eyed. But I want you to, um, to listen close today as Daniel comes and speaks. He's going to share with you a little bit about what's going on up in their church and what God's been doing up there since last time they were down. Uh, and then he's going to share some of God's word with us this morning. But uh, you will not find uh, a, a finer couple than these guys who love the Lord and who have given everything that they've got to reach their community uh, for Jesus Christ. And so, Daniel, if you'll come and share with us from God's word and share with us about what God's doing up in the Seattle area, uh, I know that we would appreciate that. And I, I just want to pray for you as you come and ask God to speak through you. Okay, so let's bow together and let's ask God to speak. Lord, I pray. Um, that as Daniel steps up, that you just give him every word that he needs to say to us today. But I pray even more, Lord, that you give us ears to hear. Uh, hear what you wanted to say to us personally, but also, Lord, to, to give you permission to, to tap us on the heart and to let us know if you want us to be a financial partner, if you want us as individuals to, to pitch in and to help to support the work that you're doing in an area 
um, that, that so much needs the gospel. Lord, they're outside the Bible belt. They're, they don't have uh, all the, the things that, that we might have here with a church on every corner. But Lord, they are being the, the salt and the light that you've called them to be in Seattle and you're blessing and you're growing their church and you're helping them to make an impact in an area that has so few churches. So Lord, uh, just speak to us today, make it clear what you want us to do and then help us to be faithful and to be obedient to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Morning, Crossroads. It's good to be with you guys. In Seattle, we say guys, not y'all. So that's what I mean. I mean y'all, you guys. As Rob said, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Daniel. I had the joy of serving on staff at Crossroads 10 years ago. It's hard for me to believe that. 10 years before, or before that, we had come up on a mission trip, my, my youth group from Seattle in 2009, to serve alongside Crossroads, to help out with VBS, to do outreach in the park. And it was a trip that changed my life. Met Pastor Rob and, and the, the youth here, the church here, and it wasn't shortly after that that God called me into ministry, and I thought, you know, I, my family's not in ministry, my family's in medicine, it's like I don't really know what a pastor does, but if, if there's anyone I want to learn from, I want to learn from Rob. So we stayed in contact, and he flew up in 2011 and officiated my wedding, me and Stephanie got married, my high school sweetheart, Stephanie. Love you. And uh, we talked about doing a summer internship the next, next summer. So spring rolls around, and that summer internship turned into a three-year-long journey of learning alongside Rob, finishing my undergrad. I was ordained as a minister of the gospel here on, at this church on my birthday, 2014. have great memories of this church and experienced radical generosity of the church members here right as we moved in. Didn't know anyone other than Rob. And Tim and Diane Connor opened up their house to us while we were trying to find a place to stay for the first month. Shortly after that, Thomas Malone opens up a house just down the road here. We stayed there. This little greenhouse that was just, just right for us had a 25 by 50 foot garden that we grew these watermelons and cucumbers and we would shoot our shotguns right outside the backyard. Really had a great time. This Seattle northerner experiencing the rural south and having a great time. And so much of what we learned at Crossroads, the, the love the acceptance, the warmth, the generosity. We wanted to take a piece of that back to Seattle and infuse that in our culture that can be so... uh, Seattle cares about everything other than you. (laughs) We care about the environment. We care about... We're not very friendly and warm, and and we tried to take a piece of that crossroads with with us as we started the church. After we were here about three years, we, we returned home to the Northwest to start a church. We called it the Mountain Church. And uh, mountains were significant in the scriptures where God would teach his people. People would encounter God and the glory of God and the grace of God on mountains. So we thought that was a symbolic name that as mountains are beautiful and there's a big mountain that we see from our town called Mount Rainier, that that name fit. And we started meeting in our house 2016, praying, God, we don't really know what we're doing, (laughs) but help me to love your people and and teach the Bible. That's one of the things that, that God taught us here. I didn't really have experience. Rob really took a chance on me, this young punk from Seattle coming, coming to be youth pastor. But God really taught us here, love people, teach the Bible, and God will, God will do the rest. The results are up to him. Uh, you guys have, been, have made a lasting impact on myself, my family, my marriage. You, your church has been supporting us since the beginning. 
in 2016 when we started our church, I, I don't think that there are words that accurately can convey the gratitude and the thanksgiving that we feel for Crossroads Church. Thank you. I'll try to summarize it by just saying thank you. I, it just seems to fall short. But Stephanie and I, we thank God for Crossroads and all that we learned here. After so many other churches in our area, so many young churches, we call them church plants, didn't make it through the pandemic. We knew it was because of, of partnering support, like the support we got from Crossroads. Is By the grace of God, we're still alive. Our church is still around. Praise God. By the grace of God, our members are growing in peace and joy and love and serving as they're becoming more and more gripped by the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. I've, I've learned a lot in planting a church. I'm very young, and I'm, I'd like to think I'm less prideful now than I was then, but God has humbled me through the process and showed me that what transforms people is grace, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've, I'm, I've come to be convinced by this. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone. But then he writes in Corinthians that it's the gospel in which we received, in which we stand, and by which we're being saved, or we're being sanctified, we're being renewed, spiritually transformed. Paul writes in Colossians, the gospel has come to you, and it's bearing fruit as it has over the whole world. So in other words, the gospel is not simply just something we believe, and we become saints from sinners. The gospel is something we continually believe to progress as saints. And as I've come to this conviction and, and God has shown me this, it has been a joy to see the gospel bear fruit in Seattle in our church. It has been a journey of joy. Lives are being renewed. Lost sons and daughters are coming home. Marriages are being repaired. Families are being brought together. People are growing out of the cold indifference into loving, welcoming gospel warmth. I thank God for what we get to do, and I thank God that you have supported us to do it. Thank you, Crossroads Church. Your monthly giving to us, your prayers, your encouragement, your mission trips that you send each summer, we would not be around today if it weren't for supporters like you. If I communicated thank you enough, I'd like to share a message on a verse that I think summarizes what I've learned so far in our church. Our big lesson I've learned and I'm learning, something I've experienced in ministry, I think something that describes the path of life, and that is this verse, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think about growing in grace as growing as a Christian. It's what it means. Growing more and more out of pride and growing more and more into humility, or you could say descending more and more into humility. I've seen this truth. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I've, I've seen it, whether it's church leaders being removed from ministry, whether it's couples that, and families that are ready to give up, whether it's individuals that are ready to end their life or drink it away. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Amen? If you have your Bibles this morning, let me invite you to open to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're looking at Really, verses 5 and 6, but I'll, I'll read verses 1 through 11 to get a little more of the context. First Peter is toward the end of your Bible, right after the books of Hebrews and James. Peter writes this, 
So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Humility has been a big theme this year for us. We have felt humbled. I've realized past mistakes that I've made as the pandemic has given us a pause, a time for reflection. I've had leadership transition. I've gone to former church members and apologized for my pride. Our pride can be hateful, can't it? We're often the last people to see it. This morning, I'd like to consider, number one, what is humility? Secondly, why is it important? Like, why do we need it? Why don't we have it? And thirdly, I'd like to consider how do we grow in it? So we've got grace and humility. So after Peter is talking to the elders as a fellow elder, he's, he's calling the, the pastors to shepherd the flock, to exercise oversight, to, to not be domineering, but to be examples. He's talking to those who are younger, to be subject to the elders. He then turns to the whole church, to everyone. And he, he says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now you see that phrase, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's quoting a proverb, Proverbs three thirty-four. Towards the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Other translations say he, he mocks those who mock, but gives grace to the humble. There's a key teaching of Jesus in the Proverbs in, in this similar line of thought. Jesus says, in, instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. And he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This was important in the Proverbs. This was important to Jesus. And for two people that were close to Jesus, they both mentioned the same exact phrase and verse. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter mentions it, who was a man who was close to Jesus, who walked alongside him. And the half-brother of Jesus, James, quotes it in his letter of James. It's important. (laughs) Humility and this verse is important to them. And they say, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter is helping us here define what humility is, what it looks like. It's a recognition and an understanding that you are under the mighty hand of God. And you're placing yourself under his authority, his care, his protection, Humility is the assessing yourself appropriately. You can define humility as knowing your place. 
you are under the mighty hand of God, and you are on par, you're level, equal with everyone else. You're not above everyone else. You're not below everyone else. You're underneath God and equal with others. So there's not this disposition of looking down upon others, nor is there this self-deprecating, like one day I hope to be as good as everyone else. Humility is knowing your place. You're under the hand, the mighty hand of God. And notice that humility is not the absence of anxiety. Humility is not the absence of sin. Humility is the willingness to admit it and deal with it when it's there. Humility recognizes when the anxiety is present and casts that upon the Lord. Pride is not the absence of anxiety. Pride is keeping your anxiety to yourself and thinking that you can deal with it on your own. You're not casting it upon the Lord. You're not entrusting your anxiety to Him. So humility looks like a dependence upon God and a deference to others. Peter says this, Humble yourself before God, but also clothe yourself in humility towards one another. So humility is dependence upon God and deference to others. You're clothing yourself with humility towards others. Webster's Dictionary defines humility as the freedom from pride or arrogance. In other words, humility is, isn't just a low view of yourself, as if you're, you're humble because you don't talk highly of myself. Right, we think about, sometimes people can think about humility like this. Oh, I'm, I'm just terrible. I'm, not, I'm not, no good, nobody. I'm not any good. But you're still kind of consumed with yourself, so it's actually still a form of pride. It's a false sense of humility. A guy named C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity. He defines humility like this. He describes it like this. To even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. So you meet a truly humble person, you're not going to walk away from them thinking, wow, that guy's really humble. You're going to walk away thinking, wow, that guy was really interested in me. Something had a low view of himself or he had a high view of himself. He was so interested in you that humility was demonstrated in that very reality. So would those that are closest to you describe you as a good listener? Would and family describe you as a person who is genuinely interested in them? Are you constantly trying to connect the conversation back to yourself so that you can talk about your own story or yourself? Would your friends or family say that in an argument you're quick to defend yourself? Do others feel free to correct you and confront you, or do they worry about how you might react? Are they unwilling to be honest with you? When you make a mistake, are you quicker to ask for forgiveness or to defend how you were really in the right and they were in the wrong? These questions help us get at the heart of humility. The Apostle Paul describes humility in his letter to the Philippians as not counting yourself as more significant than others. It's the opposite of selfish ambition or conceit. It's the mindset of Jesus Christ. Others focused. Humility says, I am more interested in knowing you than speaking about myself. Humility is a delight in serving, and it leads to a certain kind of freedom where you're actually free to give yourselves to others and really know them. This is humility. Dependence upon God, deference to others. It's an awareness of your own neediness. I need God and I need 
others. This is humility. Now let's consider why is humility important? Why do we need it? Why don't we have it? Pride is deadly and dangerous. Pride, the scriptures say, goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. When pride comes, there comes disgrace. But with a humble spirit is wisdom. Do you want to know how to destroy your life? Do you want to know how to destroy your marriage? Do you want to know how to destroy your family? Do everything you do out of pride. Make it about you. We need humility because in our natural state, we are self-sufficient, independent, prideful people, if we're real honest with ourselves. Pride springs up in us like weeds in a garden. It's not as though you pull that weed and you say, whew, never have to deal with that again. Next week, there it is. Always needs pruning, pulling, removing. And paradoxically, if we think that we have no pride, we are, in fact, the most prideful. (laughs) Pride is foolishness. If there is an all-powerful creator God who gives life and breath to all, to live as though you don't need him is to live out of step with very reality itself. You're disconnected and disjointed with the truth. I heard a pastor once tell the story on the danger of pride. There was a minister, a boy scout, and a computer expert. They're the only passengers in this plane, a small little plane, and the pilot comes back to these three passengers and said, guys, we're going down. And bad news, I only have three parachutes with four people. The pilot said, you know, I should, I should really take the parachute because I have a wife and I have three small children. So he takes the parachute and he jumps out of the plane. The computer whiz said, well, I should have one of these parachutes. I mean, I'm the smartest man in the world. The world needs me. I know computers and I'm the smartest. I'm the most important. So he takes the parachute and he jumps. And the minister turned to the Boy Scout with a sad smile and he says, you're a young man. You know, I've lived a rich life. You should any parachute. I'll go down with the plane. And the Boy Scout looks at the, the minister and he says, Reverend, relax. The smartest man in the world just picked up my knapsack and jumped out. <laughs> the wisdom of the scriptures instructs us that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Now, there's something worse than adultery. There's something worse than being a liar. There's something worse than being a murderer. There's something worse than being an abuser. Do you know what it is? You're proud that you're not one of those. Being worse than a liar is being proud that you aren't one. Being worse than being an abuser is being proud that you aren't one. I think this is why Paul uses the language of clothe yourself in humility. As if something is active, we, we have to engage in it. You don't just wake up and say, boy, I hope I get dressed today. I'm thinking, yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> it takes active action. You put the clothes on and then just magically appear on your body. This kind of mindset, it takes discipline to focus, forget ourselves, and focus on others. It's like a baker who ties on an apron around their waist, or like a woodworker who puts on a leather apron, a Christian gets up and they clothe themselves in humility. Their work is service and love. 
You can see where the lack of humility or presence of pride is present in your life, such as when you get angry. You know why you get angry? You don't get what you want. Get irritable, angry. The person got a Christmas gift that I wanted and I didn't get it. See this in my kids. They get angry, quick. It can happen instantly. Anger teaches you what you value. You're constantly getting angry at my kids because they're not listening. They're not doing what I want. They're annoying me. I want my comfort. I just want some silence. I just got home. I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to be interrupted. I don't want to be inconvenienced. So I get angry at my kids because they're not doing what I want. You get, why do you get angry at the person who cuts you off on the road? Think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. But Peter says, clothe yourself in humility. He's talking about an active daily practice. It's a reminder. I can have grace as that person cuts me off on the highway because I know I'm not any better than they are. And without humility, there is going to be continual conflict in your life. It's a weighty thing to hear that God opposes the proud. I've seen deep, loving, vibrant community is not possible with pride. Without humility, relationships and friendships will be marked by distance, bitterness, and withdrawal. If you're friends with a very proud person, a person who only talks about herself or himself, only focus on their interests, your relationship with them will look like constantly bowing to meet their needs, constantly listening. It's not a healthy relationship of receiving and giving. It's just all giving. There won't be the kind of natural closeness, self-disclosure. Someone who is interested in you, they're only interested in their self. New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner writes in his commentary on 1 Peter, he says it like this, smooth relations in the church can be preserved if the entire congregation adorns itself with humility. When believers recognize that they are creatures and sinners, they are less apt to be offended by others. Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Pride gets upset when another does not follow our own suggestions. Augustine said it like this, the first way to truth is humility. The second way is humility. The third way is humility. If humility does not precede our wisdom on our help, our efforts are meaningless. The Christian life starts with humility and continues in humility. So we've seen, what is humility? Dependence upon God, deference to others. We've seen why is it important? Without it, relationships will wither and fail. Before destruction goes pride. Pride kills relationships. It's at the heart of us rejecting God and our self-sufficiency. We need humility to truly live and to love others. So then how do we get humility? Is it just, stop it, be humble, amen. How do we grow in it? Notice what Peter says in verse 10. The God of all grace. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. The God who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble is the God of all grace. He himself will do the work. When you see that it's this God, the God of all grace, who will establish, 
who will strengthen and restore. The more that you're gripped by this God of all grace and you see his grace in the scriptures, you see his grace in your life, you will descend into humility. English Puritan minister said it like this, 1960s, John Flavel, they that know God will be humble and they that know themselves cannot be proud. The grace of God comes to us and teaches us that apart from him, Apart from the intervention of God, you were destined for death and separation and hell. And apart from his gracious intervention, your reward would be suffering and misery. Yet in his kindness, the God of all grace sent Jesus Christ, his only son, full of grace and truth. From his kindness and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Christians will humble themselves under this mighty hand of the God of all grace. Because the mighty hand of God crushed the truly humble one in our place for us. Jesus humbled himself by taking on human flesh. Jesus humbled himself by obeying the law. Jesus humbled himself by becoming a servant, washing feet, healing the sick, associating with the lowly and the despised. Jesus humbled himself as he was mocked on the cross. Jesus humbled himself as he allowed the people that he created to nail him to a cross and to kill him. Jesus humbled himself by suffering in silence. Jesus humbled himself by welcoming sinners and sufferers like you and me, calling those who not, do not deserve his love and grace, his very own, to share in his presence and in his joy and in his forgiveness. We grow in humility not by focusing on what we must do to become more humble, but by focusing on what Christ has done, which crushes our pride. Amen? We grow in humility by considering, by counting, by remembering that apart from Christ, we were hopeless and helpless. That we need the grace and mercy of God every day for our mistakes. For the ways in which we fail to love God with our whole heart and mind and soul and the the ways we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. Yet this Jesus, he has intervened on our behalf. He has given us hope. And he, our chief shepherd, has called us to himself and invites us to clothe himself, clothe us with humility. Jesus humbled himself for us, and it's in response to what he has done for us. It's in response to his grace that we humble ourselves. It's an encounter with the grace of God, I think, that leads to humility. It's the grace of God that teaches us to be humble. It's in light of the gospel of Jesus, the gracious message of Jesus' death, life, and resurrection in which we humble ourselves. You guys following me? In light of all these glorious gospel realities, we we walk in a manner worthy of the calling with all humility and gentleness. I think practically some of the ways that this can play out is in prayer. I heard a pastor say once that life without prayer is arrogance. Do I pray this short little prayer before I start the morning, before I, I prayed this before I got up and preached? God, apart from you, I can do nothing. Help me. I need your help. Help me to abide in your love. Apart from the vine, I can't bear any fruit. Help me. Humility looks like asking for help. Looks like texting a friend, a family member, when you're struggling. Being honest about your weaknesses and your struggles. Humility looks like asking your spouse this question. How can I grow as your husband or as your wife? 
How do you excuse me? Humility looks like asking you community. Where in me do you see pride? Where do you see pride in my life? There are the deadliness of pride is that we're often the last people to see it. So we need help to see our own pride. We need Jesus and Jesus pursued us. He focused on us while we were consumed with ourselves. And the message of the gospel is continually to focus upon Christ. Gaze in the beauty of what he has done. And as we do this, it's as if we turn our eyes from ourselves and even from our own efforts to try to descend into humility and humility overflows as we look at Jesus and consider what he's done in the gospel. So I've seen God do in my life. I have been proud. I have come to Seattle thinking I am the answer. I had a chip on my shoulder as pastors would tell me again and again, how old are you? I'll show you, old man. Watch me start this church. And it was focusing upon proving myself or proving others wrong. And that was pride. And I didn't see it. And God humbled me, particularly through the pandemic. He humbled me. Our church shrunk in size. I, I didn't know if we were going to make it. We were about 20, maybe less than 20. How are we going to pay the bills? Where are we going to meet for church? Who's going to? Is this what you did? Father, you did call me up to Seattle to crush my pride and be done with us. We considered that. We talked with our church. God, do you want us to continue? And the church said, we, we don't believe God wants us to close. We believe God wants us to see through this and continue. And the last year has been the most rewarding year, or one of the most rewarding years of ministry of my whole life. Because I don't have this mentality of, I got to grow my church. I got to preach the right way. I got to, okay, all right. I haven't told a story in a while. I can see people in the crowd. They're getting a little bored. Their eyes are getting a little loopy. They're starting to pull out their phones. They're checking Facebook. I got to tell a story. Okay, now, now's the time of the sermon. I got to get really emotional. I got to drive one in. I got to lower my voice. Everyone's waiting. And then I got to get loud and I got to make my points and I, I got to be charismatic and dynamic. And I'm the one. People are going to come to listen to me preach. Man. Look at how beautiful and gracious Jesus in the scriptures. This is my heart. And as I've I've been doing this, God has been showing me again and again, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This summer we had the privilege of baptizing more people in the life of our church than we ever had before. Not that baptism is a sign of the health of a church. But I'm seeing God bring new people into our church that are are being saved and, and one family is sharing their faith with another and we're baptizing them and they're baptizing their friends and it's it's beautiful to see. And we're not this mega church. We're maybe now 50, 50 adults, 30 kids. But when we've been looking through the story of Samuel, and we've been seeing how God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, we've seen the rise and fall of Saul and the rise and fall of David, and we are leaning into this idea of the grace of God and the humility of God and asking God, would you continue to instill in us a dependence upon you and a deferring to others? And I don't know how to say it. It's just I feel free. I feel relaxed. I feel peace. It's just been awesome. Praise God. And I wanted to share this message as, as a way of what God has shown us the last year, 
what he's been doing in our church and how we've been humbled and yet from this from being humbled we have experienced new life and love and peace and joy and i wanted to try to convey that to you all this morning y'all that god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble and as we pursue humility as we pursue being more interested in others than they are in us we will see our community flourish and our church flourish as a loving and other-oriented, self-sacrificial community. And as we help each other remember and point to the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. While we were giving him the finger and running away from him, he came after us. And he loves us and pursues us. And would that be instilled in this church, that sinners and sufferers can find grace and healing in Jesus, and that lost sons and daughters can be welcome home in this church. Can I pray that for you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Crossroads. Thank you for your hand of providence and sovereignty and bringing a church from Seattle all the way down to a little town in southwest Louisiana that people in Seattle can't really even pronounce right because they say the N and it's kind of confusing. And Lord, you, you connected us in a way that only, only you could. This church became our family. Rob became a spiritual father. And thank you for the witness and the service of Rob. Thank you for the way that you have led him here to root his life to serving this community. Father, you have taught me perseverance and faithfulness and service and humility through Rob. Thank you. Thank you for the ways in which you continually work in this church and you send people from it. And you raise up ministry leaders and people the surrounding churches and churches around the nation. Or thank you that your grace continually calls us back to yourself, that your mercies are new for us every single morning. Lord, we need you. We recognize our dependence upon you. We admit that apart from you, we, we can't do anything. The church can't do anything. Ministry structures and models and plans can't do anything. We need you. Thank you for the support and love that you have shown us through this church. Pray that you would raise up more ministry leaders, more church planters and pastors from this congregation. I pray that you would turn towards this church, that you would bless them and keep them, that you would make your face shine upon this church, that you would be gracious to them, that you would turn your face towards them and give them peace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um.